Welcome to What That Means with Camille, companion episodes to the Cybersecurity Inside podcast. In this series, Camille asks top technical experts to explain, in plain English, commonly used terms in their field, then dives deeper, giving you insights into the hottest topics and arguments they face. Get the definition directly from those who are defining it. Now, here is Camille Moorhart. Hi, and welcome to this episode of What That Means, Post-Quantum Cryptography. Today, I have with me Raphael Mishotsky, who is a cryptographer at Google. His main areas of expertise are post-quantum cryptography, and we'll ask him what that is, privacy-preserving cryptography, conventional cryptography, and their application to common security flows. So Raphael contributes to international standardization efforts on cryptography. He's an expert member of the USA delegation for ISO-IEC and the co-editor of the ISO-IEC 14888-4 standard. We can maybe get into that a little bit too. And co-author of two submissions to the NIST. NIST is the National Institute of Standards and Technology. That's the American Standards Organization. The NIST Standardization Competition on Post-Quantum Cryptography. He got his PhD from the University of Paris in France in 2013. And he also holds an MSc degree in electrical engineering and a BSc degree in computer science both from University of Sao Paulo in Brazil, where he's originally from. Welcome, Rafael. Thank you very much for having me. It's, it's like a long time no here for you because we actually met years ago when you explained what post-quantum cryptography was when you were working at Intel Labs. And I remembered how articulate that was, and I wanted to talk with you again about it. So to kick us off, could you actually define post-quantum cryptography in under three minutes? Okay, so maybe I can start with what is cryptography first, then I think to help us to, to get to the PQC, post-quantum crypto uh, definition. So essentially, cryptography is the practice and study of a set of techniques that are used to achieve certain security properties, and all of those in the presence of adversaries. So by properties here, I'm talking, for example, about confidentiality, where we are uh, interested to protect data. We want to let this data only accessible to some authorized users. This is achieved by using what we call encryption algorithms. And in very rough terms, these algorithms, they scramble the original data in a way that only owners of some secret key can revert such scrambling process and then recover the, the original message. So one example of one algorithm that does that is AES, which is widely deployed. Another property that we are usually interested in the, in the world of cryptography is what we call data authentication, where we are interested to ensure that some data came from whoever claims to be the owner or the sender of this data. And for this purpose, we use, for example, digital signatures like RSA signatures and so on. So the main thing here is that all these uh, properties that I just described, they can be achieved as long as some very specific computational problems remain intractable. It's impossible to solve those problems, right? And what quantum computers bring to this discussion is that quantum computers can actually solve some of these problems much more efficiently than what classical computers can do. And as a result, we now will need to replace the crypto systems that we use now 
by some schemes that use um, computational problems that are intractable even in the presence of quantum computers. So this is the field of post-quantum crypto. It's all about finding, uh, detecting, or creating new computational problems that can resist quantum attacks and then build crypto systems on top of that. Very interesting. So you're in the business of creating an intractable problem. Yeah, exactly. Most often we are we are reviewing the literature and trying to find computational problems that do not seem to be amenable to quantum speedups. So quantum computers should not be able to speed up the solution of those algorithms um, when compared to classical computers. And I want to know all about that. So let's dive a little deeper. So can you please explain what is quantum compute? Yeah. There's quantum mechanics and there's, you know, we've heard of sort of quantum physics. I think probably everybody's heard of it right now. What is that to begin with? And then how, how do we generate compute out of it? Yes, that's a very good question. So essentially, quantum computing is a different computing paradigm. The simplest way to explain the difference between classical computing and quantum computing is how data is uh, are represented. In classical computers, we have bits, and bits can either store zero or one. There are just two states. And in quantum computing, we work with what we call qubits. And qubits, they can store zero, one, and also a superposition of the both states, zero and one. So this property that I just mentioned, the superposition of states, is exactly what allow amazing speed ups to solve certain computational problems. I'm, I'm not saying that this can be used to solve any problem. It's just that this property can be used to solve very specific computational problems. And as I mentioned, it happens that most of our cryptography, they it relies on computational problems that are affected by these quantum speedups. So pause for a second, because you mentioned superposition. And this is that notion that uh, like you said, in classic computing, there's you're either a zero or a one. It's either on or it's off in the byte. Yes. And, and in quantum, you're saying, actually, until you measure it, it could be both at the same time. Exactly. And yes. isn't that fundamentally different than the physics of the universe that we learned about in the early 20th century? Uh, yeah, that's a trick question. Um in the end, we are dealing with quantum phenomena all the time, right? But there are several layers of interpretation of this phenomena. And my understanding is what the previous generation could see was only one layer above. And now we are getting to this lower layer of understanding of the physics and how how the world works, actually. Didn't Einstein say something like, I think that he was making the comment around quantum entanglement when he said it's something like, scary magic that happens far away or some kind of a quote like that, right? Yes, yes. This is a specific property of uh, that quantum mechanics can offer. It's not exactly, um, how can I say, related to the solution of the cryptographic problems uh, we are talking here. We can use this, pro this phenomena of quantum entanglement to achieve something else, which is quantum key distribution. But I think this this will go out of the scope of the, the 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 topic here. Okay, quantum key distribution. So I'm going to have you back on, and we're going to talk about that. Sure, because that's very interesting. Also, so coming back to 
quantum compute, which is essentially applying these quantum mechanics into a compute system, you're saying you can have a superposition which allows for a zero or a one or a zero and a one to exist. And then how does that make computing so much more efficient than it is classically? You can think about all the possibilities, for example, for every single bit of a piece of data, right? There are essentially two options. It's either zero or one. And just you can think about you are mapping all these possibilities as a binary tree. Like every node you have to go to zero and then to one. You have to make some verification whether it's zero or one. So you really go both branches of this tree. While if you are using a quantum computer, you are essentially visiting both nodes zero and one at the same time. And if you keep doing this for several layers, you start gaining what we call an exponential speed up because you're not going at every layer, you're going like from one node to two, then four, then eight, then all powers of two. And this provides like an exponential speed up. You can verify much more nodes than you would be able to using classical computing. So you're looking at, you're not looking at this entire decision-making tree all at the same time. You're still going layer by layer, but but you're able to look at all the options within each layer simultaneously. Exactly, exactly. That's exactly the point, yeah. Yeah, you turn something that would have like exponential time into something that's linear time. From that perspective, yes. Okay. Well, well let's just kind of quickly go through this because I think a lot of people might be familiar, but what kinds of encryption is this going to affect? Is, is quantum compute going to realistically impact everyday people? Are we talking about obscure situations or are we talking about breaking the entire internet potentially? Yeah, it's more the the latter. So essentially breaking uh, most of the systems that uh, has some security properties. And I'll tell you why. So essentially cryptography has two main approaches, which we call one is symmetric cryptography. And in symmetric cryptography, the two communicating parts, they share the same secret, the same key. That's how they can exchange secret messages. And in the second approach is what we call asymmetric or public key cryptography. And in this public key cryptography, we have each party has its own private and public key. So each party has a pair of keys, right? And in practice, security protocols and systems, they use a combination of both approaches together to achieve some security property. So now what's important here is that quantum computers are expected to break these two approaches actually using different quantum algorithms and the speed ups are also different. So for example, for symmetric cryptography, the expected speed up is, is important, but it's, it won't be enough to completely break those schemes. It's just a matter of increasing the parameters, increasing key size, and you can still save your uh, favorite symmetric crypto algorithm. Now for public key cryptography, the expectation is that large quantum computers will completely break public key crypto. And by completely here, I mean that it's not by just increasing key size or parameters that you can prevent quantum attacks. No, the foundational uh, mathematical property there is broken in the presence of quantum computers. So that's where is really the biggest problem here is public key cryptography, where we need to create new crypto systems to replace the existing ones. We cannot just increase parameters. 
where am I using public key cryptography? Is my email and my online bank account? Am yeah. I, okay. Yes, essentially everything. Public key cryptography is really widely used. For example, when you access a secure website, when you have the, the lock, the HTTPS, the S means that you have a security layer and necessarily you're using some public key cryptography to, to authenticate at the very least that you are talking with the website you expect to. And by breaking these things, it will just be what we call a crypto apocalypse because <laughs> you know, public key crypto is really used everywhere. But you're not suggesting that in order to provide an intractable problem to a quantum computer, you need to be also using a quantum computer. You're suggesting we can no. use classic computing, but we have to use a different kind of a paradigm of encryption. Exactly. Quantum computing will be very good to solve some very specific computational problems, but not all. The, the challenge here is, is, okay, let's try to find some mathematical problems that are not affected by quantum computers. And if we find those, then we can just build new crypto systems that can be deployed with classical computers, classical protocols and, and, and everything, and still be uh, quantum secure. So that's the beauty of post-quantum cryptography. We can deploy those right now, right away, because we don't need quantum mechanics to actually deploy the solutions. We just need conventional computers. So, Raphael, is that wishful thinking? Because if you combine artificial intelligence with quantum computing? Mm -hmm. I mean, how long is it realistically going to take a quantum computer to figure out whatever you put in place now? If we build a crypto system that's considered secure by the crypto community, then we are talking about a computational problem that even if you leave all the time of the universe and essentially all the atoms trying to solve this problem together with you, even though that would not be enough, to solve this problem, just to give an intuition about how complex are those problems. So even using artificial intelligence, um, it's not expected to, to really uh, break those problems as long as they are well chosen and well well defined. So, so is the community who's looking at this kind of a global community, does that community agree on the solution or the framework for the solution. I know when I talked with you a few years ago, it was like there were still some competing uh, yes. proposals. Yeah, is that still the case, or have we have we come together as a globe? <laughs> yeah, we we have made some progress as of now. Industry, academia, and standardization bodies they are all working together to define the next generation of cryptographic uh, standards, uh, in particular post quantum crypto standards. As of now, there are some standards which were already published. For example, NIST has published the document SP800-208, which defines uh, hash-based signatures, which is the same topic of the ISO standard. I'm an editor that we mentioned in the beginning of the mm -hmm. podcast. So there are some standards which have been published since we talked last time, but the largest competition, which is also led by NIST, the NIST PQC competitions is still ongoing. And the truth is that there are various PQC approaches. There are various ways of building post-quantum crypto systems. And the community is still uh, scrutinizing and understanding what are the most robust and efficient approaches uh, among those. So there's still some ongoing discussion. And at least for the next two years or so, there should be some discussion about um, converging to one single approach. 
So does the whole world use, uh, you mentioned like AES mm-hmm. or HTTPS. Is that an example of something that's converged and we're going to do something similar? It might look different, but... Yeah, AES is a, a cryptographic, uh, it's an encryption algorithm that is a standard and is widely used worldwide in industry users and academia. But there are other algorithms that have been created, that were created uh, in other countries. And it's just that they are not interoperable, but um, they might be just as good as AES. But in general, there is a desire, there is a wish to use the same algorithm because then we can make systems that can talk to each other. And, and it's even easier for the community to actually check if a single scheme is secure or not, uh, rather than investigating a large set of schemes, given the complexity of the topic. So if we're moving from classic computer, or we're taking our, you're calling them classic computers, where that's kind of funny. It reminds me of like Coke Classic or something. We're still using the, what you're considering <laughs> a classic computer is like my most, exactly. my, my best, highest performance ever I've ever had. And you're saying, well, that's classic. That's nice. <laughs> but it, um, what, is going to be the impact for these classic systems or the most advanced systems we have today as they transition to post-quantum cryptography? Will they be able to roll right into that or is there any kind of a concern? Yeah, that's a very good question too because when we migrate to post-quantum crypto, very likely there will be a performance impact because most of these new schemes, they are either less efficient or they require longer keys. So this is exactly one of the main challenges in the current discussions is how to achieve post-quantum security and still achieve the same level of performance. So this is a very hard, very hard question, very hard problem. Uh, there have been some progress, but uh, it's still my, my intuition is that the system would still have suffer from some performance penalty while transitioning to PQC. So is this going to need to be like, if you're saying my my email encryption and my bank online banking encryption and everything I sort of think of on the internet is going to have to transition on my regular Mm -hmm. computer, is my laptop going to have to adopt this or is all this stuff going to be done in the cloud where those applications are operating or where the backend processing is operating? Yeah, the the short answer is that yes your computer eventually will integrate these post quantum crypto systems and this will happen as follows at first we work on the pqc standards that will define the crypto algorithms then these crypto algorithms they will be adopted by higher level standards for example protocol standards like for example tls which is the security uh, protocol for uh, the internet and then eventually for example your browser will be compatible with this newer version of TLS, and therefore you have the crypto algorithm running in your machine. So it starts an adoption from the crypto algorithm to protocols, to systems, and so on and so on. Usually this should be transparent to the user, except for what I mentioned, there might be some performance penalties. Hopefully in the coming years, we'll be able to to address this uh, concern. And what can system architects do now to ensure a smoother transition? Oh, yes. So essentially, one of the main problems uh, we might face now is that some systems were built 
with very rigid structures. For example, the key size of the crypto systems could be hard-coded, which we mean um, it's hard-coding the source code, so it might not be able to easily change the key size. So these kind of things, they are problems when you are changing the crypto algorithm, right? So one thing that systems architects and, and application developers could do now is uh, to ensure that their application, their systems, they are ready to handle different crypto systems. If the key size changed, they would be okay. If the, the crypto algorithm changed, they also uh, would abstract this change. So this kind of things, this kind of practice is what we call crypto agility. And crypto agility is really this uh, set of techniques that make systems more um, easily updatable. And this is definitely something that architects now can do and no need to wait. Are you talking about hardware systems or software systems or both? Essentially both. Uh, one thing to mention is that uh, upgrading or changing hardware is usually harder. Software is usually easier for us to patch. So it might make sense to, for example, look into the hardware piece first because they require maybe more time for, for this transition. But, uh, but in general, both will be affected. So you're saying like if you're somebody whose company is designing cars mm -hmm. or industrial machines or something that is likely to be around possibly still around and used in a decade or so, you definitely at this point should be taking this into account. Yes, it's a very good, very good direction to take now because on top of the complexity of making those changes in their system, there is also the process of changing our crypto algorithms, which history has shown that takes long time. For example, elliptic curve cryptography is a very, very interesting uh, crypto uh, approach. And it was invented back in the 80s, and it took about 20 years to gain some adoption. So the, the process of changing crypto algorithms is something that takes a long time. So that's why, for example, these markets, these uh, industries, um, they should start looking into this transition as soon as possible because it's a long process. It's a, a multi-year, uh, if not a decade-long process to change a crypto algorithm. And, and one thing to mention is that actually, regardless of this uh, timeline, there is also another attack that actually is relevant, essentially, regardless of when quantum computers are built, large quantum computers are built, which is the observation that some adversaries might be now harvesting encrypted data to break it later. That's what we call a store now, oh. encrypt later. Store approach. now, break later. That's what you said? Wow. Yes. Hmm. And, and and just think about, for example, your social security number, right? Which is something that's very valuable now, but it will also be very valuable like uh, a few decades from now. And as such, if some adversary captured the encrypted format of your social security number and just wait until large quantum computers become a popular technology, and then they will be able to break it, right? And it still might be very harmful to, to users, so because of that, there is also um, a desire to migrate to PQC as soon as possible and to prevent this kind of store now and decrypt later attack. Wow, something I wasn't worried about until just now. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, so actually, when 
are quantum computers arriving? Are there some real ones now? And are there when do we expect them to be available more broadly? Yeah, this is a really hard question. Uh, to be honest, I'm definitely not qualified to give a precise answer, mainly because I don't work actually building quantum computers. I work more on the security consequence of such a new computing paradigm. But what the community has been saying is about some potential timelines and the likelihood they turn out to be true. For example, Professor Mikhail Moska from the University of Waterloo, who is a very famous expert in this field, he says that there is a non-negligible chance that quantum computers large enough uh, to break RSA could be built by the end of this decade, like by 2030 or so. And, and this is already very scary because such a risk should definitely motivate companies and organizations to, to start planning and deploying the PQC transition. Because if there is a non-negligible chance, well, there is a chance. So, and this is a really a big problem because if at some point we, we realize that there is such a large quantum computer, uh, as I said in the beginning, this will be a crypto apocalypse because uh, we cannot trust anymore our banking systems the critical infrastructure systems, which also rely on, on information systems, uh, it will be a really big problem. So that's why it's important to start preparing and deploying this transition sooner than later. Okay. Yikes. And also very cool to be warned. <laughs> Actually, can you just give us um, quickly what are quantum computers more adept at doing besides just breaking our encryption? Yeah. <laughs> One of them, probably the best known, is breaking cryptography as of now. There are other applications, for example, quantum physics simulation, which uh, can be, uh, it's expected that quantum researchers can accelerate these problems using quantum computers. There's also an expectation that by solving these problems, uh, quantum physics and, and quantum chemistry uh, simulation, they could be able to actually create a new drugs, new medications that uh, as of now, we won't be able to do it because we just, just don't have this kind of computing power. But again, as of now, it's very limited, actually, the set of problems that quantum computers solve much faster than, than classical computers. Well, uh, Raphael, thank you so much for joining today. I feel smarter and it's just, it's so interesting. It's like I go about my day and I don't think about quantum physics and how it's applied to compute. And obviously it's a direct intersection with security because it's encryption. So thank you so much for giving me and anyone who's listening some insight into what this whole field is about and what it means and why it matters. <laughs> thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. If you want to learn about homomorphic encryption, uh, there's also an episode with Rosario Camarota. And we have another episode on cryptographic services coming up with Eduardo Cabré. So thank you very much for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cybersecurity Inside. Follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Morehart on Twitter to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation.